So let's pray and ask God to bring this, his word, to us with conviction. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you this, for this word that you've given us in giving us your Son, Jesus, in your love for the world. Help me now to speak it truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and to receive it as it is, the word of the living God to us and believe you and so find life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A conversation that can change your life, a conversation that can give you life, new life. Uh, Nicodemus got more than he bargained for in his memorable nighttime conversation with Jesus. He got more than he bargained for in more ways uh, than one. In response to his friendly reaching out to Jesus, he got a blunt and puzzling rejoinder. Where he thought he was conversing with a fellow teacher, he met someone who, who said he could give him eternal life. Nicodemus needed that blunt response of verse 3, for he was shooting far too low in his estimate of Jesus, and he needed to be shocked out of it. His opening, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Well, that sounds generous from such a respected teacher as Nicodemus, a serious religious man, a member of the Jewish elite, the ruling council. He calls Jesus. In his generosity, he is including Jesus, an unlearned carpenter, in the same category of people as himself someone Jesus later calls, verse 10, the teacher of Israel. But this compliment is in reality so far from the truth of Jesus' greatness that it is an expression of unbelief, not faith. Just as today reckoning Jesus a teacher and only a teacher, whether that's of morality or spirituality, is still an expression of unbelief. You see, Jesus will not allow himself to be contained in that category. His work restricted to just bringing new understandings of revelation already given, more instruction about how to live. Jesus, as we've seen in the Gospel, has already demonstrated that he is the one who can bring the abundance of the new creation, water, into wine. He's already said he is the new temple, the one in whom people will be able to draw near to God and live at peace with God in God's presence. And he has shown that he is characterised by the zeal of God's true king. And so Jesus redirects this conversation abruptly to help Nicodemus see what Jesus is really on about, the true significance of his ministry. Truly, truly, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, not being first century Jews, the significance of the kingdom of God and the emotional weight of that phrase can be missed by us, but Nicodemus understood both, as we'll see from his disappointed reaction. Now, kingdom of God isn't talking about a geographical place like the United Kingdom. It's a phrase that speaks of the reign of God, the time of God's rule over the earth. And it doesn't just speak of God's providential rule over all things, you know, making the sunrise, guiding the affairs of nations. No, kingdom of God had become a term that 
brought together what the Jews expected God to do at the end, do on earth, when he came in power to rule and fulfilled in history all the promises he had made in the prophets. Just one example of those prophetic promises, the book of Ezekiel, because Jesus is actually going to refer to Ezekiel a little later in this conversation. If you were reading the prophet Ezekiel from chapter 34, you would see that God promised himself that he would come and save his people. Oh, he would at the same time establish David's descendant as ruler in Israel. Chapter 35, you'd see he's promised to execute judgment on Israel's enemies who gloated over her fall. He would restore the land like Eden. Chapter 36, this land that was desolate, they'll say, has become like the Garden of Eden. Chapter 37, he promised to raise the dead and bring an everlasting covenant of peace and dwell amongst his people. He would restore we're told in the last few chapters of Ezekiel, the temple, and make it the place of his presence and the source of life and fruitfulness for the world. And as we'll see, at that time he promises his people new hearts and to give them his spirit. Now Ezekiel's just one prophet. There are more promises in Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, all the prophets. And so the Jews had a lot to look forward to. And the kingdom of God, the reign of God, was the phrase that described this time when God would bring all that to pass on earth. Now think how this reign was longed for by the faithful Jews of Jesus' time as they continued to be oppressed under Roman occupation, continued to suffer from triumphant idolaters, continued to know grief and death. They longed for this time. But actually think again. Think about how this reign of God is something we would also desire to share in if we could. To have no death and no fear of death. To live at peace with God and each other, secure in an environment that was always fruitful and safe. Oh, to have a leader you could trust to act wisely, justly, righteously. To know the living God, that's something to desire, isn't it? Well, Nicodemus thinks that Jesus, uh, saying he must be born again, is making a, a statement about the timing of the coming of this reign on earth, <laughs> that it would come in the lifetime of those born later, the next generation, a, a timing that would exclude him from sharing in that time. For someone like Nicodemus longing for this kingdom, Jesus' words were an emotional kick in the guts. It would be like you know, having somebody with terminal cancer, months to live, and somebody coming along and telling them, yes, the promised cure is coming 25 years from now. This was a pronouncement that gave Nicodemus no hope, and so he challenges what Jesus has said. Jesus demanding of him what is clearly impossible as a condition of sharing in this wonderful reign. How can a man, he says, be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now Jesus doesn't back down. He just makes it clear that Nicodemus has misunderstood the kind of new birth, Jesus says, 
is necessary if someone is to share in that wonderful kingdom. Truly, truly, he says to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says that to us. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus, you see, is speaking not just of being born again in the sense of having a rerun of this life. He is speaking of being born from above, from God. He is speaking of a new kind of life from a different source than the life you receive from your physical parents. Jesus is actually bringing out the significance of what God has already said in Ezekiel 36 about what must happen before sinful Israel, an Israel that had worshipped other gods, broken his commandments, lived ignoring and rejecting their God, and Israel suffering under God's judgment. Jesus is just saying what must happen before sinful Israel, sinners, could share in the kingdom, live at peace with God in his presence. Ezekiel 36, you heard it read. Verse 25, in Ezekiel, God says... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. See, to live in the kingdom, God said there was cleansing needed. Water, the sprinkled water that purifies. That's a picture of forgiveness. They must have the offence of their sin, their idolatry, giving their trust and loyalty to created things and not to their creator, removed so that then God's spirit could come and dwell in them. And the spirit must come, for there is new life needed if they're to continue as God's people doing his will. You see, God says, verse 26, they need a heart transplant, (coughs) getting rid of that heart of stone. You know, the dead heart that does not respond to God's word, the stubborn will that refuses to do God's will, that heart has to go and be replaced with a new heart, a living heart that can respond to God, that will beat in time with God's commands because it's alive with the life of the Spirit of God, the new spirit God gives his people. Now think of Israel, who had the commands, who had a history of relationship with the living God, needed this cleansing and a new heart to be able to be God's people. Well, then we all do, all of us. Because all of us, children of Adam, have given our loyalty and trust to created things, our idols, and not to our creator. Every time we choose to do what God forbids, we're actually saying we trust ourselves more than God. We know better than God, and we are idolaters, worshipping ourselves. Oh, when we put our confidence in money or our intellect or science or, well, something other than the living God, we are worshipping idols. And idolaters are unclean. They're not fit for God's presence. And we are given up in judgment to our follies. We all need that cleansing and new life from the Spirit. We need to be born again of water 
and the Spirit, if we are to share in God's reign. And there is only one source of this new life, the Spirit of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the Spirit is that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This life of relationship with God where we love him and want to do his will can never arise from the life of this age, the flesh. It's not something you can inherit from your parents. It's not something you can create in yourself. It is the life of the new age. So Nicodemus, who knew the scriptures, Jesus said, should not be surprised when he was told he needs another birth, a life that comes from a new source, the spirit. And Jesus gives a picture from nature about how this new life comes. It's like the wind, he said, uh, which was a, a natural image for them because the word for wind and spirit were the same. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This new life the Spirit gives is real now. Even though the Spirit can't be seen, you experience it in its effects, just like the unseen wind. But it is the gift of God, subject to his direction, not under our control, not something we can direct. Well, says Nicodemus, how can these things be? If a person can't direct the spirit, how can you get this new birth that you need to enter the kingdom of God? St. Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, how has your answer brought me any closer to a hope of sharing in that time that I long for? Haven't you just made it more distant? Something that's now impossible for me to attain. Well, Jesus answered, are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? He's saying, you should have got this from Ezekiel, this necessity of cleansing a new heart, a new spirit. And if you don't believe me when I teach you the scriptures, you already have earthly things, how will you believe when I tell you new things, things revealed from heaven? But you should, because Jesus goes on to say, when I tell you of those new things, I should be believed because I will do it with authority, a unique authority, an authority that's real, even if not accepted. For Jesus says he is the one come down from heaven. The only one, the Son of Man, the glorious exalted one, to whom the Father entrusts rule, who is in the Father's presence. I should be believed when I speak to you of truth from heaven. And Jesus goes on to reveal that truth. Having assured Nicodemus of his authority, Jesus then goes on to answer Nicodemus's question about how these things can be in verses 14 to 16. Here, Jesus tells Nicodemus and us how this new birth of the Spirit will be possible. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I suspect Nicodemus's head at this point is already hurting. He's probably said, too much, too much. Don't worry, there's more. You see, uh, using an Old Testament picture, Jesus is now going to give Nicodemus a whole lot more to get his mind around. See, Jesus says this new birth, the cleansing and the coming of the Spirit, will come about by his, Jesus' death. Jesus speaks here of eternal life, coming through faith in him, crucified, lifted up. Now, eternal life is not just never-ending life, more of the same of this life over and over again. No, eternal life is the life of the age to come. It's the life of the new heaven and earth, the life of God's people in the kingdom of God, the life the Spirit gives, the life that starts now with the Spirit given new birth but will go on into eternity. This life, Jesus says in verses 14 to 15, will be given to everyone who believes that Jesus' death is God's provision to deal with their sin, their rebellion against God. Now Nicodemus knew his Bible and so Jesus refers him to help him understand this to the incident in Numbers 21. Uh, the people of Israel are going through the wilderness. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Sound like your kids, really. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people said, came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So how did rebellious Israel find forgiveness and life? How did they escape God's just judgment on their faithlessness, their grumbling and ingratitude? Well, it was, showing, it was by showing their trust in God's provision by looking at the bronze serpent and they'd live. That's right, verse 8. In God's mercy it was look and live. It was that simple, just faith in God's provision for pardon and life. There was no work, no act of penance, no sacrifice they made, nothing they did that could be seen to earn this forgiveness. It was just look and live. And Jesus says that he, lifted up on the cross, is God's provision to spare us death in judgment and give us life. You see, being lifted up is a way of speaking of his death. Before his death, Jesus said, as we heard last week, now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And remember what he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let that sink in. 
you can live forever at peace with God through faith in Jesus crucified on the cross as God's provision to deal with your sin, God's provision for forgiveness and life. It is look, look to Jesus and live. You must be born again. That is God's work. What God calls you to do is to put your trust in his son, Jesus, and eternal life is yours, the rich and glorious life of the kingdom of God. Now why? How can it be like that for sinful people, sinful people who deserve death? That's right, we share the same thanklessness, the same pride that says, oh, God's accountable to us. We can't trust him until he's proved himself to us. Oh, we share that same dismissal of his word. And I suspect you are conscious of many other ways in which you have disobeyed and sinned against God. How can it be for us sinful people that it is look and live? Look at the beloved son, the eternal word, hanging on the cross for our sin and find life. Well, he gives us the answer in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says it's look and live because of God's love for the world. His love, there's no other explanation. Love which is free and undeserved and for the undeserving. And see the wonder of that. Think of what the world is and then think of the sun. See, in John, the world is not another way of speaking of the human race and is not another way of speaking of the elect. The world describes humanity in a relation of rebellion to God. The world is human society that follows the lies of the devil, that seeks to keep God out of our life. Jesus will speak later of the world not knowing God and hating him. God's love for the world is wonderful, not because of the quantity of people it embraces, but the quality of the people it embraces. This is a love for rebels, for sinners, for people who have no time for God and really don't want him in their lives. It's a love for people who will see in the gospel, will carry through their rejection of God in killing his son. This is love for the world. And here's an even greater one. For love of this world, for people who hate him with a murderous hatred, for sinners, God gives his unique son, Jesus, to endure the pain, the shame and humiliation of death on the cross so that he could give those who would believe in him life. Now, now people try to illustrate the kind of the measure of God's love in giving God's, God giving his son. I fail to do that because for me it is unthinkable. It's unthinkable that I would ever give my son for somebody else. <laughs> Definitely not for somebody who hated me. But God has done that. Now, friend, think of this. For you to know that you're included in the love of God, 
This love without measure that sent the Son to die to give you life. You just need to know, to be able to confess that you are part of the world, that you have shared in that rebellion against God that would rather do things your way than his, that you've shared in that ingratitude to God that uses what he gives without acknowledging him, that you believe the devil's lie that you are somehow equal to God and that God won't keep his promise or his warning of judgment. In God declaring his love for the world, there is an invitation for you to come and trust his son, whatever your background, whatever your sin. God is saying to you, look and live. And that's wonderful. And it's actually confronting, isn't it? It seems so open, so free. Look and live. But that's what God says, for all who know that they are sinners. This declaration that there was life for all kinds of people who shared in rebellion against God was confronting for Nicodemus too and for most of the Jews of his day. You see, they thought that at the end time when the kingdom comes, God's king would come and, yes, save the elect Jews, but judge the world and condemn idolaters. So Jesus makes God's purpose in sending him, the Son, into the world very clear. For God did not send the Son... Back, back, good. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's a wonderful statement. God's purpose in sending the Son and the outcome of that purpose is very clear. God's purpose in the Son's coming is to save the world through him. You should never doubt that if you're a believer in Jesus. Never doubt that when you're seeking the salvation of others in your prayers, in sharing the gospel with them in your conversation, in helping them overcome obstacles believing to believing, never doubt that you are acting in line with God's purpose for Jesus' coming. He has come to save. And the outcome of God sending the Son into the world to save? Well, it's that those who believe in him, believe that his death lifted up on the crosses for their sin, believe that his rising lifted up to God's right hand is to give them life. It's that those who believe will have life, will not be condemned at the judgment, for God gives them an effective saviour. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those who believe are not condemned. And if you've not yet been a believer in Jesus, think how wonderful it would be to go home today knowing that that was now true of you that you had peace with the living God, that you had a confident hope, that you could face life and death without fear. Whoever believes is not condemned. But those who don't believe, it says, are condemned already, condemned already because they turned their back on the only provision that can spare them from the judgment that their rebellion against God already deserves. 
You see, those who don't believe have refused to accept Jesus' revelation of himself as the unique son sent into the world to save. And there is nowhere else to turn because there is no other provision God has made for their sin. The son lifted up on the cross such an extraordinary gift from such a generous God who wants people to be saved. So why don't all believe? What would stop people believing? What might be stopping you from believing? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If you're not believing in Jesus, God says don't blame God. The world does not believe. People don't believe because they love their sin more. They don't want their rebellion against God to be seen for what it is. They're afraid of the shame, afraid of having to admit that they're not the good people they want to think of themselves as. That when they did that cruelty or unkind or selfish thing, they really could have acted otherwise. They don't want to have to admit that their thanklessness to God is actually base and without cause and that they owe him things. They don't want, for example, their affair to be seen as shameful lust. They want to talk about this love. They don't want their walking out to be seen as abandonment and betrayal, but as a noble seeking of their full potential. They don't want the humbling of saying God knew better and they should have listened to him of admitting their defiance is just the proud folly of creatures who, though dust, think they know better than God. They don't believe because they love their sin. If you're not believing, ask yourself, what sin is holding you back? What do you love more than life, than coming to Jesus to find life? What do you fear being exposed and known about you if you come to Jesus? Because Jesus knows it already. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Whoever does what is true, that is, lives by the truth, is faithful to Jesus' revelation of himself. Well, they love the light because they want the glory to be given to God, glory for what he has done in and by them, by the power of the new life he gives, the power of the Spirit. Well, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is extraordinary, isn't it? As I've said before, I reckon Nicodemus's head would have been full. So many ideas swirling around that he would have gone over and over in his head. Oh, yes, a conversation he would remember all his life. Now, I hope that will be you as well, that you will go over and over hear what God is saying to you in your head. And remember it all your life, for this conversation, this word of God, gives life. We've seen that, haven't we? Jesus gives hope where Nicodemus thought hope was being taken away. Hope, because he'll die for our sins. Hope in God, 
not in ourselves, for a share of the life to come. Hope in God's generous love, in the provision of his Son, lifted up on the cross to give life and spare from judgment all who will believe in him. And as you go away turning this conversation in your head, resolve to never underestimate Jesus and what he's come to bring. He is not a teacher but a saviour and the saviour of the world. And as you go away, never doubt the Father's love. It's generosity, it's graciousness to sinners. And don't ignore the Father's purpose. Jesus came to save. Oh, and equally, don't bring judgment upon yourself by loving your sin, your shame, where God is offering you life through trusting his Son. And don't think you can blame God for your unbelief. Work out what it is that you're loving more and turn away from it to put your faith in Jesus, the unique son sent into the world, given to the world to save. And if you're sitting here, and by God's grace you know that you know God's love, you know that the son lifted up on the cross has brought you forgiveness and the new birth of the spirit and eternal life, well, if you know that, then share it. God the Father has sent his beloved Son into the world to save, not to condemn. A world that's already under judgment. It it, it doesn't come under judgment just when they hear about Jesus. It is already under judgment and needs to hear about Jesus because God fulfills his purpose for the Son by bringing people to believe the gospel about Jesus. The gospel Jesus first preached here to Nicodemus that he is God's provision for our sin. So if you believe and you know that new birth, get in line with God's purpose and point your friends and neighbours to the Saviour on the cross. So think about it. It would have been a pretty miserable Israelite, wouldn't it, who... You know, having been bitten by the snake and knowing that they were dying, feeling the poison going around in their body and had looked, listened to Moses and looked at the bronze serpent and found themselves well, it would have been a pretty miserable Israelite who who then kept that to himself or herself, where all around people were dying. You'd expect that the healed person, the restored sinner, would be saying, it works, it works, listen to the word God gave Moses, look and live. Well, how much more miserable would it be to have a Christian who, having trusted the Son, the Lord Jesus, crucified and risen, been spared from judgment, been given the new birth of the Spirit, having now the life of the age to come, knowing that they will share in that glorious kingdom and in that having come to know for themselves God's love, how miserable would you have to be to keep it to yourself? Don't cry out, listen to the word God has spoken to us through Jesus. Jesus saves. Look and live You don't have to have all the answers to point people to Jesus. You just need to know that you've been forgiven and given new life. Trust Jesus. Know this new life. And brothers and sisters in this congregation, let's encourage ourselves not to be miserable Christians, but to share the good news of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, 
These are extraordinary words spoken by your loved son that he has come to save by his death and that you have given him in love for the world, for sinners. We thank you that you have vindicated this word of your son by raising him from the dead and exalting him to your right hand. We thank you that you have vindicated your son by giving to him your spirit which he pours out on all who believe. And we thank you that trusting him we have come to know this, those of us who trust Jesus for ourselves. We thank you and praise you that you are faithful to your word of promise, that you have brought a new heart and a new spirit through the death of your son. We thank you and praise you for your love. We thank you and praise you that you assure us of your saving purpose, that you have sent the son into the world to save. And we pray in your mercy that we would take this to heart, that those of us who believe would live lives full of thankfulness and joy, that point people to Jesus, and that those of us who don't yet believe would be convicted of the sin that's holding us back and turn and find life in Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.